Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. Great to praise God through music, to sing to Him, to encourage each other and build each other up in that. We're going to spend a few minutes now, though, praying to Him. And I want to read for you just a couple of verses from the end of Psalm 73, which is just a great encouragement to think through uh, who we are praying to and what to to thank God for. The psalmist says uh, from verse 23, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Let's pray together. Dear Father God, we just thank you that we can come to here this morning. In a busy week, in a cold morning and sometimes hard to get out the door. But to be in this room now, to meet with you as you promise. Lord, we thank you that no matter what is going on in our lives, that you don't abandon us that we need reminding sometimes that you're always holding our hand, you're always guiding us, even though sometimes you might feel like you're far off. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, thank you for uh, speaking into our lives, as the psalmist said, through, uh, with your counsel, that you speak to us through your word, the Bible, through uh, others around us, through meeting with your believers. Lord, thank you for not abandoning us but speaking into our lives. Lord, thank you for that vision of future glory, knowing that there's more to this world, there's more to this life, but you are leading us home. Lord, we can see there's nothing in heaven that we should desire besides you. Lord, there's uh, so much, it's going to be so much better than what is the here and now, but Lord, to be with you, to be in your presence, in person, face to face, that is what we desire. And this world, as we look around, it's all so futile. Well, there's so many things we want to do or have or enjoy, but yet compared to your plan for us in heaven, Lord, they are just meaningless. Lord, we're sorry that sometimes we get caught up in this world. We're sorry that sometimes we put our heart's desires on the things of this world rather than on you. So, Lord, we just commit ourselves to you now that you would speak to us this morning, that you would draw us near to you. And that we would refocus on eternal things, not the superficial things of this world. We prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. We have finished our series on um, our journey through the Bible. And now Ben is just going to bring us uh, a talk through the Old Testament that is looking at uh, how we understand the Old Testament and the relevance. Because sometimes we see parts of the Bible and goes, what's it got to do with me? So we're going to read... Um, the story about David and Goliath. So we're going to 1 Samuel 17. If you've got your Bible there, it'll be on the screen. 1 Samuel 17, reading from verse 3. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. 
On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like that of a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? I'm not a Phil- uh, am I not a Philistine, and you are not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come out to fight me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. And if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Thanks, Ross. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. If we haven't met, um, we're going to go on this journey through the whole 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to look at all of this, and I can't wait. So let's pray, and then we'll hook into it. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can gather together this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's good. Thank you for 1 Samuel 17 and the story of David and Goliath. We pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see today and a heart to understand. And we pray, Lord, that you would transform us and change us, that this would be one of those moments, Lord, that we can say we met with a living God and were transformed by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We love a David and Goliath story, don't we? We love that. We love the idea that an underdog, a little guy, can beat a bigger guy, a bigger dog. This is why we use this metaphor all the time in our culture and our society. And if you've been watching the news, you would have seen this Ukraine and Russia, it's David the little guy versus the big guy of Russia. A little bit closer to home, we saw that this week with the state of origin, the little guy, the underdog of Queensland versus the juggernaut of New South Wales, the Goliath. There was more this week, if you've been following the news, the story in Port Macquarie even. This one was a little bit strange, but there was Telstra were putting up some antennas in a street And a woman wasn't happy with that, and she said, and I'm quoting here, she said, it feels like a real David and Goliath moment. We love this idea. We love the idea that I can be an underdog and take on my enemies. And that's not just true in our culture, that can be true in our churches as well. We love this idea in our churches sometimes, this idea that I am David and I can take on my giants. That if I can just gather together some stones and, you know, throw hard enough or straight enough, then I can conquer my giants. In our culture, in our society, sometimes even in our churches, we love this idea. But there is a problem with this. There's a problem with this. Now, I understand how metaphors and images work. So on the one hand, I get it. But the problem with this is when we actually come to the Bible and look at the story of David and Goliath, This moment in history is not actually about a little guy beating a big guy. That does happen, but this is not primarily about an underdog beating a bigger dog. That's not what the story's about. And so what we want to do is come together and think about that for a moment this morning. Because it might be true that David and Goliath is the most famous story from the Old Testament, but it might also be the most misunderstood story in the Old Testament. So let's spend a moment together and think about this. And today what we're going to do is we've got two goals together. So let's see if we can do these two things. Number one is think about the relevance of this. What does David and Goliath mean for me? That's what we want to do. But then our second goal is, 
as Ross sort of alluded to before, as we've been on this series through the story of the Bible, our second goal is how do we read the Old Testament? How do we read the Old Testament in a way where it's relevant, but also faithful to the whole story that we've seen so far? Okay, so those are our two big goals. Let's have a crack at this. So if you've got 1 Samuel 17, let's open it up. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. We pick it up where it begins in the first couple of verses where we see the scene is set. And then the key verse there is verse 3 where it says this, the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. Okay, so how do we understand this story? What does it mean for me? Where does it fit in with the story of the Bible? Well, it begins with an intimidating enemy. But our first step to understanding this moment in history is to set the scene for us. We want to know where we are in the story of the Bible, and we also want to know where we are in Samuel. Okay, so this is what we've seen so far in this series. God created the world. Remember, we've been working through this graphic. God created the world in the very beginning. He is the living God who created all things. Week two, we saw sin enter into the world as people rejected God. And what did we see in the Garden of Eden? We saw sin, we saw Satan, and we saw death now enter into the world. Week three, we looked at some promises to the patriarchs. Father Abraham, we saw God gave some promises to Abraham that God's people would be led into his land under his rule. Now, we skipped forward at that point to Jesus, but... From that moment in the Old Testament, we get the law. The law is God's way on how people can flourish. He shows them how to find life. And then after the law, in the story of the Bible, we find ourselves in the kingdom. This is where God's people go into God's land under God's rule. Now, this is where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel. This is where we are in in Samuel. God's people are in God's land and they've got a king. So Saul is the very first king of Israel, and he's just been put as king, and he's picked as king because he's a really tall guy, essentially. That's why Israel chose him to be their king. They wanted a king like every other nation, and so that's what they chose. Now, that's not a good thing, that they want to be like every other nation, but God is gracious and kind in the process. Okay, so this is where we find ourselves in the story in 1 Samuel 17. We find ourselves in the kingdom section of the story. And we had read out for us before, the the picture we've got is the kingdom of Israel versus the kingdom of the Philistines. And literally the image is two mountains, one mountain over here, one mountain over there. They're facing each other, Philistine army on one hand, Israelite army on the other. Now it's out of the Philistines we see our great intimidating enemy. Welcome to the stage, Goliath. And we read about Goliath in verse 4. So let's see what we know about Goliath. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. For our modern ways of understanding how tall that is, it's about 2.7 meters. He's tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of a scale of armor, a bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's about 60 kilos. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin slung on his back. His spear shaft was like weaver's rod and, his, and its iron point weight weighed 600 shekels, which is about seven kilos, and his shield bearer went ahead of him. Okay, so we, we did put in our modern versions of how heavy that stuff is and how tall that is, but that's really important because what do we know about Goliath? He's a unit. This guy is tall and strong. That's what we see about him, 2.7 meters, and he's carrying my weight on him as armor. I can't even lift that, and he's going into battle with 
that. What a beast of a guy. And he comes out of the Philistine camp and he says, let's go, let's fight. Now, if you're Israel, what are you feeling in that moment? What are you thinking in that moment? For me, it's unfair. How's that fair that they get this guy on their army? More than that, I'm thinking this is how we die. Right? Of course that's what you're feeling. If you're Israel looking at this guy come out, he's tall, he's strong, this is game over, this is your death warrant. Now I actually had a moment where I felt this at one point in my life. Um, When I was 14, I played rugby league. And even if you don't like sport, you'll appreciate this because one of the main aims of rugby league is you've got to tackle the other team. Now there was one game where we were playing where we had... 13, so you can have 13 on, your fi- on the field and four reserves. We had 17, and we were versing Red Bank Plains, who had nine. But we watched them rock up, and we were thinking, wow, they don't have many players. This is pretty good, until this guy turned up. And he got out of the car, and he was so big. He's like six foot tall, huge. I'm pretty sure he had a beard, and he drove himself there and was smoking a cigarette after the game. This is the picture. We were meant to be 14. And we played him. And so it was 17 verse 9, and they beat us. Because no one could tackle this guy. And I remember thinking this, as he rocked up, I remember thinking, well, my first thought was, wow, their coach looks strong. But then it was, I'm going to die. And we're all going to die. And no one died, but we did lose. And to this day, sometimes I wake up in cold sweats, (laughs) thinking about this grown man that I had to tackle. Now, This is what Israel are feeling, except they don't just have to tackle him, they've got to kill him. You know, that's how you feel when you see someone who's a meter taller than you and stronger than you. This is what they're feeling for Goliath. It fills them. They are frightened by this guy. He's tall, he's strong, he's got a lot of armor on him, and then then he speaks. And what he speaks is just as scary, because he stands up in verse 8, and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy, or the word there's literally mock, I mock the armies of Israel, give me a a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Goliath is a a big, tall, scary guy. And he is speaking to Israel saying, let's fight and whoever wins, the other army will be their servants. And Israel, when they see this, are dismayed. Now, as a side point, it's interesting when he says here, choose a man to come and fight me. The reason that's interesting is because Israel have already chosen a man. That's what they did in Saul. They chose Saul to be their king. This was Saul's moment that he was meant to shine. This is the king's moment that he's meant to shine. But Saul is the king the people wanted, not the king the people needed. Because when Saul sees this, Just like the rest of Israelites, he is scared and he is afraid. They are terrified by this guy. And they're terrified the first time they see him and they're terrified for the next 40 days. This moment goes on for 40 days. Twice a day for 40 days. We read about this in verse 16 when we see this. For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. 
So you can, you can appreciate the weight of this moment. 40 days, twice a day, this guy comes forward, this tall, scary guy saying, let's fight. Let's go one-on-one, let's fight. This is your death warrant, and whoever wins, you know, the other gets to be their servants, the other's army. 40 days is a long time of uncertainty and fear and worry, but, but that's what happens when they meet Goliath. Now, it's worth noting, in this section we do meet David. David rocks up. Uh, We see in verse 12 to 15, he's the son of Jesse from Bethlehem. We see he's come to the battle because he's got some food for his brothers. Uh, From verse 17 to 23, that's basically why he comes to the battle, to bring some cheese to the commander of the unit. But the vibe of these opening verses is verse 24, when it's summed up here like this. When the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. When they see Goliath, this big, strong, scary guy, for the whole Israel, the Israelite army, they are filled with fear. They are scared by this big guy. Now, at this point, we know this much of the story. You know, no one came here this morning thinking Goliath wasn't a big guy. This is everything that we probably assumed about Goliath, that he would be a big, strong, scary guy. Maybe we didn't know how big or how strong But all we've seen so far is pretty straightforward. So the question we want to ask is, how is this any different to what we already knew about this? How is this story not about a little guy taking on a big guy? Well, let's meet the little guy. In fact, let's not call him a little guy. That might be a little bit... uh, that might be a little bit unfair for David. Let's call him an unexpected fighter, because everything we see about him is actually unexpected. So David is bringing cheese to the commander, and then verse 26, he, he has a look at Goliath, and he, he says this. He says, what will be done for a man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy or mock the armies of the living God? Now, when he says there, the uncircumcised Philistine, what he's talking about is the fact that Goliath is a pagan. He doesn't worship the living God of Israel, the God of Abraham, but worships other gods. That's what he's saying there. And when David rocks up, he says, who is he that he should do this, that he should mock the armies of the living God? Now, that's pretty fascinating because Israel is scared, Saul is scared, but David's not scared, he's defiant. Now, how is he defiant? How is David defiant in this moment of Goliath? Well, I think he's defiant because he knows the story so far. He knows who the living God is. You know, he he remembers how the world was created in great power. He knows the God who chose Abraham out of nothing and and made him into a nation. He remembers the story of of the other giants and the other enemies of Pharaoh, where God brought them out of Egypt. Or if you remember from Deuteronomy last year, Sihon and Og, as God defeated those giants. He knows the story so far, and he knows who the living God is. And so knowing the story, he rocks up and sees Goliath and says, how dare this guy mock the living God? Now, there's a sense here, isn't there? There's a sense here that David might be the guy to fight Goliath. We know that much of the story, but before he does, there's a few obstacles he's got to face in our passage. The first one is his brothers. Interesting that his family stand up against him first and foremost, and his brothers say in verse 28, why have you come down here? How's he going to deal with this obstacle? Well, I love the way he does it because it's just like any good younger brother. He says, what have I done now? Can't I even speak? He sidesteps that comment and he keeps going. That's essentially what happens there. But then there's another obstacle and it is Saul, the king of Israel. Now this moment, you've got Saul, the guy who is king, chosen by Israel, but not really acting like a king. 
And you get this moment where David is going to come to Saul, David who's not the king, but acting like the king, and as we know, the future king. So how's this moment going to go down? Saul versus David. How's it going to go down? Well, well, let's read, because it is unexpected how David speaks. Because David doesn't just say, how dare this guy mock the living God. David nominates himself. Look at it in verse 32. He says there, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, your servant will go and fight him. That's a little bit unexpected. Because he's not saying, I will go and tackle him. Or I will go and message Telstra about their antennas in the street. Or even Queensland versus New South Wales, if that's what you want to do. He's not saying that. He's saying, I will go and fight the champion of Philistine. This is a death warrant. And there's a lot on the line here, because if he loses, the whole army of Israel have to become the servants of, of the Philistines. So how does Saul respond? Well, he responds in the way that you would expect. He says in verse 33, you're not able to go and do this. You are only a young man who has been, a, a, and he has, that's Goliath, has been a warrior from his youth. Saul is saying you can't take a knife to a gunfight. You don't send a rookie in to fight a champion. That's essentially what he's saying here. But how's David going to respond to Saul? Because Saul's response makes sense. Well, David replies in verse 34, and his reply is really good. And what you get is not just unexpected braveness or courage. What you get is unexpected wisdom. Have a look at verse 34, what David says. He says this, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And then here's the key line in verse 37. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. How good is what David says there? That's so powerful. He says, the Lord will give me this victory. Now, it is worth noting, David's not a small boy, right? Like that much is worth noting. You know, sometimes in the kids' Bibles, sometimes we think of David as this like four-year-old child who fights the giant. But David is grabbing lions by the face and killing them. And bears, he's, he's pretty strong, right? So he's not a small boy, but he still doesn't compare to Goliath. There's still a mismatch here between him and Goliath, but he has a confidence. But you see, it's not a misplaced confidence. You know, sometimes young adult men can have misplaced confidence. Not David, though. His confidence is in the living God who created the lion and created the bear and created the Philistine, and he knows God will give him victory over this. Now, if you're Saul, how do you respond in that moment? Well, what's Saul going to do? God knows he's not going to fight this battle. He's not going to be the king that people need, and so he unleashes this unexpected fighter. He sends David in. Firstly, he tries to put the armor on David, which is kind of funny. It doesn't really work. David's not used to it, and he says, stuff the armor. Let me just grab five stones, and he goes on his way. And so here we arrive at the moment, David versus Goliath. We're finally at the main event. The stadium's full, the lights are on. Everyone's been waiting for this moment. 
But again, here at this moment, we're kind of wondering, how is this not about a little guy beating a big guy? Because that's what it looks like so far. I mean, maybe he's not as little as what we expect, but it's still an underdog. It's still a mismatch. So how is this not everything that we've come to know about David and Goliath? Well, what we're about to see is the battle. But what we're about to see is, is the fact that what we read of this battle is not actually about David and Goliath. They're involved, but what's it about? Well, I'm going to argue it's about a battle between the gods. It's about a battle between the living God versus the battle of the gods of the Philistines. Now, let, let's test this. Let's see if that's what happens. We read about this battle as it unfolds in verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. So in this battle between David and Goliath, Goliath gets the first words. He's coming, towards Goli- he's coming towards David, and as they get into the battle, what's the first thing he does? He despises David for his good looks. How good is that? If you've ever hated someone just because they're good looking, it's in the Bible. I mean, you probably don't want to align with Goliath, but there it is. And you kind of wonder why he's saying this. You know, it's almost like Goliath as a child was told, you can have good looks or you can be strong, but you can't have both. And then here he is in battle, and he's like, what? Who's this guy? He's actually good-looking, and he's on the battle, and David and Goliath hates him for it. We don't know if that's what he was told as a child, but it's weird, isn't it? You know, that he's like, he's handsome, and I hate him for it. But but obviously, it's not just because he's good-looking, although that's part of it. It's because he's insulted by this. You know, this was 40 days of build-up. This was meant to be the main event, the big battle. Goliath is ready to flex his muscle, and he looks over, and here's this youth with a sling and a stone. And so what does he do in his anger? Would you notice it? He cursed him by his gods. Now, that's weird, isn't it? That feels strange. So what does it mean that he cursed him by his gods? Well, we don't know what he said, but we do know who his gods are. In fact, this is something that we see a little bit earlier in 1 Samuel. In chapter 5, we get this moment where the gods of the Philistines come up against the living God. And the god of the Philistines called Dagon. Now, what happens is the Philistines capture the Ark of the Lord. And the Ark of the Lord represented the presence of God. This was sort of God among them. And so the Philistines capture the Ark of the Lord and they bring the Ark of the Lord into the temple of Dagon. Now, what happens? They go to bed and they wake up the next night and Dagon, the statue of Dagon's fallen face down. So what do they do? Well, they set Dagon back up and then they go to bed again. And the next day it happens again, but this time Dagon's head has fallen off. That's what happens when the living God comes up against the God of the Philistines. So the Philistines said, let's get rid of the Ark of the Lord. Probably a pretty good idea. But we've already seen the battle between the gods, right? We've already seen that Dagon is nothing compared to the living God. We know that. So, so Goliath is sitting here, strong, big, mighty, angry, cursing David by his gods, by Dagon. And what does David respond? How is he going to react to this? I mean, it's hard to think of how you would react in this. I think, again, you know, we would be feeling the weight, the scariness of this moment. But for David, he's not intimidated by this. It's so powerful what he says. 
And, and we, know real, we know how the story ends, right? We all do. We know how the story ends, but it's really fascinating what David says because he says how he's going to win this. And notice how he's going to win this. It's so good. He says this in verse 45. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied or mocked. This day the Lord will give you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Kind of like what happened to Dagon, if we remember the story. This very day I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, uh, sorry, the carcasses of the Philistines army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. That is so good. It's so good to look at what David says here of how he's going to win this battle. You know, he doesn't say, I am the best slingshotter in the land, and I am the quickest shepherd. He doesn't say that. He's not going to win this battle because he's an agile guy or because he's strong. No, humanly speaking, in this battle, David is weak. But he says, I'm going to win because this battle is the Lord's. The living God, the God of Abraham who has chosen his people. And what happens? God brings the victory. We see this as we keep reading, and it's really emphasized here how David wins by his weakness. Verse 48, as the Philistines move closer, we see this, and then 49, he reached into his bag, taking out the stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. He fell face down to the ground like Dagon. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and he killed them. And then this, David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from its sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. The living God brings victory. The living God brings victory over the gods of the Philistines. David wins this battle, but not by his own strength, because the battle is the Lord's. Now we see the chapter finish with the Philistines chasing down Sorry, the Israelites chasing down the Philistines and then Saul finding out about the lineage of David. But this is really the moment in history. This is really David and Goliath. And what we see is that the living God brings victory over God's enemies. That the gods of the other nations don't compare to the living God. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of Israel, he is the great king. Now, as we read this again and we get to the end of the chapter, we want to come back to where we began with. We want to ask, okay, so what do we do with this now? If this is what David and Goliath is about. What do we do with this? How do we understand this for what it means for me? And more than that, how do we, how do we read it in a way that's relevant and faithful to the story of the Bible? Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to do three steps. Now, we did this in the series that we did last year in Deuteronomy. So if you were here with us, you would remember this. But, it's, but even if you weren't, it's three simple steps that we can take to kind of make sure we're reading anything in the Old Testament in light of where it fits in the story of the Bible. So the first step we take is ask the question, what did it mean for the original audience? That's the first question. And we're asking this because the first people to read this were the people in the kingdom, the Israelites. Then we're going to ask the question, how is this about Jesus? Because again, this passage was about Jesus before it's about us. 
and then we're going to think about what it means, okay? So for, for us as a follower of Jesus. So those are the three steps. So let's start with the first one, the original audience. What did it mean for the original audience? Well, if you were an Israelite reading this, sitting in the kingdom, what this passage tells you is not that you are a David. David might have been alive while you read this. You are not David. David is David. And more than that, Goliath is not your enemies. No, this passage is a reminder that the living God is on your side. You know, if you're an Israelite, that's, that's what it's reminding you of. The, the God that you know, that you've heard about, is on your side. And he can be trusted. If you're an Israelite, he can be trusted because he's faithful and good to his people. And he can be trusted when life is difficult and he can be trusted in the face of temptation. You see, for the Israelites, they often face the temptation of wanting to be like other nations. They wanted other nations' kings and other nations' gods. But this is a reminder that even if those other nations look good, they don't have it as good as you have. Because the living God is on your side. So trust Him and listen to Him and follow Him. And if you do, you will find life. For the original audience, that's what it's all about. It's all about the living God and trusting Him. Okay, so that's the first step that we make. Now, you can make that whenever you're reading the Old Testament. Just going, how did the original audience read this? Then the next question we want to ask, though, is how is this about Jesus? How is this passage about Jesus? Or how does this point us to Jesus? We do this because Jesus said the whole Old Testament was about him. The promises, the plans, the prophecies, it's all about Jesus. So let's, let's think about how David and Goliath gets us to Jesus. What's interesting about David and Goliath is that it's just one of those moments in the Old Testament where it is a one-on-one battle. You notice that? It is David and Goliath and the shield-bearer, but he doesn't really count. It's a one-on-one battle, but the spoils belong to the armies. Did you notice that? That's what the deal was. If David wins, the Philistine army loses, and the Israelite army get the spoils, the safety, and the security. It's a one-on-one battle, but the implications are for the people. Now, this is good because as you see the story of the Bible from the very beginning, the great enemies of God's people are not Goliath. He's one of them, but he's not the great enemy from the very beginning of the Bible. The great enemies of God's people are sin and Satan and death. From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, that's what was there. That was the great enemy. Sin was there, Satan was there, and death existed. And from that moment in history, there was no one who rose up who could conquer these enemies. No one was good enough. Even David, the very best king from the Old Testament, he couldn't do it. We know what he did. He fell to temptation. He struggled with sin, and then he died. No one could do this until, of course, someone else was born in the town of Bethlehem, where David was from, of the lineage of David, where we meet Jesus. And Jesus was born and grew in great stature and wisdom, and then when he began his ministry, what did he do? He went one-on-one with these enemies. He went to the desert, and he faced temptation with Satan. He lived a perfect life where he never fell to sin, and then he died. And at death, he was going one-on-one. That's what he was doing in that moment. It looked like weakness to everyone involved. It looked like weakness, but what Jesus was doing was bringing victory. But you see, unlike David, the victory wouldn't come when the stone sinks into the forehead of his enemies. The victory comes when when the nails sink into his arms and his feet. That's where the victory was won at the cross. And so there, Jesus, in his death and resurrection, defeated sin and Satan and death. And now, the beauty of Jesus is the spoils go to his people. 
That's the joy of this battle. The one-on-one battle results in the spoils, the safety and the security go to his people. Jesus is the greater David. And David and Goliath is about Jesus before it's got anything to do with us. So you see, first step, original audience. Second, how is this about Jesus? And then the third step, what does it mean for me as a follower of Jesus? This is where we read the Old Testament. You could describe it like this. We've got Jesus' lenses on. We read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, through the cross. So what does it mean for us? Well, there's some big implications if we skip the Jesus step. There's really big implications of this. So if we skip the Jesus step, what happens is you are David. Now, the idea of me being David is great. I love the idea that as an underdog, I can defeat my enemies. Who doesn't like to be told you can gain victory? We love this idea that we can be David, but there is a problem with us being David, and the problem is when the victory doesn't come. Because eventually the victory won't come. At some point for all of us, we will all die. And what happens if we're David and the victory doesn't come? Well, either we're not good enough, because we didn't get the right stones in our pouch, you know, whatever those stones were, if it's faith or prayer or love, or whatever it is, if we don't get those stones, so, so the implication is I'm not good enough, the implication is I'm a failure. If you're David, it starts good, but it will result in you being a failure and that will crush you. It moves to a works-based faith where my goodness is a better life. Now, this is made worse when Goliath is our enemies. Now, I love thinking about Goliath as our enemies. That, that can be kind of fun. You know, is your boss Goliath? Is your financial struggles Goliath? It, it feels good to kind of name our enemies as Goliath. Maybe it's not those things. Maybe it's our sickness or our mental health or whatever it is. But what we can do, if we name our problems in our life as, as Goliath. Again, what happens if we don't get victory? What happens if those things never, never go away? Because I know for some of us here today, we've been praying that certain things in our life, certain problems would go away, and they haven't. So what happens if those things are Goliath? Well, either A, you're a failure, and you're not good enough because you're not faithful enough, or B, your God's not strong enough, and your God can't defeat those things. Either way, when you look at it, if you're David or your problems are Goliath, you are a failure or God is a failure. It starts good, but it ends terribly. So how can we read this in a way that doesn't result in those consequences? Well, we read it through the lens of Jesus, where Jesus is the great David, and he's already fought the battle, and he's won the battle. And we're his people who get to enjoy the spoils and the victory of this. Now, the beauty of this is what it means is when life is hard, it's not because I'm a failure or God is a failure. It's a reality of living in this world. But because Jesus has won, I can know that I'm safe and secure. Now, there's a beautiful moment in Romans chapter 8 where Paul speaks about this. Now, I haven't got this on the screen, and I'm sorry about that. So if you have your Bibles there, I'll give you a moment if you want to flick through it. Or you're welcome just to listen to these things. Because Paul is speaking about, in Romans chapter 8, about how good it is to know that we have the victory in the middle of a world where we face problems. So we're going to pick it up from verse 31, where it says this. 
He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? These things being that God has saved us and made us right before him. He says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? Now, did you, did you hear that list? They're problems that we will face in life. Hardship, trouble, persecution, nakedness, danger of the sword. All of those things are terrible. But he's not going to say, you are the little guy who can, be, be, who can beat these big, bad problems in your life. No, the very next verse makes it worse. He says, as it is written, for your sake we face death. All day long we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says it's not just trouble that you'll face, it's death that you'll face. But there's good news here. And the good news is that Jesus has already won. Listen to it in verse 37. He says there's no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing that we face will separate us from the love that we have in Christ because he's already gone one-on-one and defeated the great enemies that we can't defeat. You see, if you are David, it will get to the point where you're a failure. If your problems are Goliath, it will get to the point where God is a failure. But if Jesus is the great David, then what it means is we can face our struggles in our life and still know that we are loved and secure and safe in what Christ has done at the cross. It's good news this morning you're not David. It's good news we're not, we're not Goliath and our problems are not Goliath. And it's good news that Jesus has the victory. Let's pray. Jesus, we celebrate that in you we are more than conquerors. We praise you for this because we know that this side of heaven, we will face problems that we won't resolve. Lord, some of us are feeling the weight of this right now, the burden of this right now. But God, the good news that we have is that our present struggles are not a sign that you have abandoned us or that you look on us and think we're not good enough, but rather it's just a sign that we live in a world under the curse of sin. And we praise you that our present struggles, in the middle of them, that we are loved and that we are still victorious, and that we know the spoils of the victory are ours. So God, would you set our hearts and our sight on the safety and the security that we have in Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen.